You're listening to episode 11 of Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we look at emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. We've got a bit of a different show for you today, so we thought we'd also try a bit of a different intro. We wanted to look at a discussion where we take a point 10 years in the past, we look at what's happening in the present day, and then we think forward 10 years and try to connect the dots between the different kinds of digital experiences and the different kinds of user experience processes that may be needed to make those happen. As ever, there will be show notes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section, and it's a particularly bumper edition this time around, so I'd encourage you to check those out and have a look at all of the different links referring to the various things that we talk about. Hope you enjoy the episode. Here we go. Welcome to the Mex podcast. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex, and back on the show is the co-host Alex Guest. Alex, how's life? Good afternoon, Marek. Life is great, thank you. How are you doing? Uh, I'm well. Um recovering a little bit actually from an experience with a rather needy piece of technology this morning but aside from that life is good <laughs> well it's, it's good that you're talking about needy technology um, I think uh, today's show will be a slightly different format to what our regular listeners have got used to um, today you, you and I will be looking at uh, a, well a little bit of what's what's coming up in the future for technology a little bit of future gazing um, and as part of that, we'll also have a, a little look back as to what's happened over the last, say, 10 or, or perhaps longer uh, time frame than, than, than that. But first, let's perhaps um, do a quick recap as to, as to where we've been and what, we're, what we've been looking at over the last few, few weeks now. Yes, that, that sounds like a good plan. I'm conscious that our listenership is growing, which is good news. But it, it means, I suppose, some people perhaps aren't as familiar as uh, others as to where the, the podcast has, has come from and what we're looking at on it. Um, so in, I founded the, the MEX initiative um, back in 2004, all around this notion that by understanding the fine nuances of customers' lives and marrying that up with an understanding of the emerging technology landscape, we can design things better for them, design a better digital future. Um, and of course, there's been the series of events around that and the publishing work that we do and now the podcast, which explores that as well. Um, and it's been an interesting ride so far. I mean, this is episode 11 for us. We've had uh, a wealth of interesting interview guests on there um, and some great conversations between you and I. But do you want to remind people um, what you're doing at the moment as well outside of this and where people can find you online? Sure. Well, let me start with that. That uh, the, the first part there is is um, I have uh, come at it from a slightly different direction. I'm I'm really sort of looking at uh, emerging technologies and in particular uh, internet technologies, um, and that's how I found found you originally back in 2010, I think it was, uh, when I first attended the the, the Mex Forum. Um, I was working on a, a TV related startup then, um, and came along to Mex to, to find out more about user experience, mobile user experience in particular. Um, these days I, I have uh, forsaken TV and, and I'm now considering more uh, what's going on in the health landscape 
digital health in particular. Um, and uh, I guess we might talk a little bit more about that later on today. You can find out more about what I'm up to if, if, if you're interested in that by, by uh, checking me out on Twitter. On, I'm Alex Guest on Twitter. Um, and uh, I also write an occasional series uh, of blog posts over on alexguest.me. Splendid. Now, I'm not going to um, subject people to spelling out my name as my Twitter handle. Suffice to say that it is just my name all as one word. But given the uh, the complexities of how that's spelled, it's probably best to just check out the show notes, which you can find at mobileuserexperience.com, which is an easy one to remember, uh, where there'll be links to uh, to Alex and I's profiles and Twitter and, uh, and all of the various stuff that we've done. So if you are a new listener to the show, then um, hopefully you can get a bit of background on, on where it's coming from. Um, but going back to this uh, format that you've planned for today's episode, Alex, what uh, what comes next? I think um, yeah, we talked a little bit about it, but I'm keen to know what you have in mind about how we can sort of trace this path around particular situations and uh, where they've been in the past and where they are today, where they might go in the future and, and how that relates to experience design. Well, I was looking today at a research report that was delving into um, the situation of mHealth, or digital health as, as some people call it, and in particular looking at the economics of app development. Uh, this is a report from 2014, um, and I, we will add a, a link in the show notes to it. Um, and part of this report was asking what will be uh, going on in mHealth in five years' time. Um, and it starts off by saying, well, before we look ahead next five years, it's probably worthwhile to look back to where the market started five years before that. So we're looking at 2009 here. Um, and back in 2009, smartphones were really only just beginning to play a role in the global mobile phones market. Uh, and this is a staggering thing. Only 13% of all handsets shipped in quarter one 2009 were smartphones. Um, the vast majority of mobile phones were just uh, feature phones like Nokia's uh, 63 series handsets um, and, and operating systems like Symbian uh, accounted for 50% of market share. So that, that's absolutely staggering. Of course, today, it's, it's a completely different story. Well, it's perhaps testament to just how rapidly that has accelerated that I think for a lot of people now, even working in this space, uh, who have a history dating back before that, um, it's sometimes difficult to get out of the mindset that it has ever been different from how it is now because these devices have become ubiquitous so quickly uh, and become ingrained in people's lives to the point of actually you know, changing people's behaviours in sometimes uh, some quite worrying ways in the way that you know people will walk out into the middle of the street with their head buried in their their smartphone despite um, you know traffic whizzing past all around them that um, you know they've they've become uh, innate, as it were, in a really very short period of time. Now, I'd like to go back to a, a time, Marek, even before this, uh, and I'm looking back to 2006, when the phone in my pocket was a brand new Motorola V3, um, a phone that had just been released in the UK. And uh, I had travelled across to South America, uh, to, to Argentina, in fact, um, right down to the southernmost tip in Tierra del Fuego, uh, to the city of Ushuaia. And, and Argentina actually hadn't received the Motorola V3 yet. It was actually released while I was out there. The, um, the V3 was this, um, the, the Razor. That's right. Yes. Yeah. 
Sure. Um, uh, it's a clamshell design. Uh, can you imagine clamshells nowadays? Um, but uh, I, I'd, I'd like to, to take us back a little bit, Marek, and, and, and uh, just read an extract from, from a blog post that, uh, that I wrote back in my travel days then. Splendid. I'm sitting comfortably, so <laughs> do begin. Good. Well, here we are. We're in Chile, in, in, in Punta Arenas, or rather we're get, getting there. Three hours sleep, pack on back, run out the door, no time for coffee or bread, no time to look at the view, straight out, no time to collect water. Is that a hangover coming on? No time to collect anything, run down the steep road, turn left down San Martin and run to the coach. I'm one of the first there. Damn, could have got some nutrients into the bloodstream. But what a big coach, big seats, comfortable reclining. So I sleep some of the time and gaze out the window the rest of it. First through snowy mountains, then soon into the plains of Tierra del Fuego. Phone reception disappeared about ten minutes out of Ushuaia and popped on again once we were on the Chilean side about four hours later in San Sebastián de Chile. Most of the land was flat and rugged pastures for sheep, cattle, horses and guanaco. Rushing off to get the ferry, or rather waiting four hours to get the ferry across the Magellan Straits, we waited next to a field with a warning sign saying, Danger, Minefield. And a short crossing and a couple of hours later, we reached our destination late at night. I was expecting to be met by a gaggle of hostel owners touting for business. And luckily I was. So, um, going back to this this uh, Sounds this like the, the beginning of a great story. Well, I, I got a little bit uh, nostalgic um, having discovered a few few days ago that this was exactly 10 years ago um, and, and started reading through the, 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 the blog posts in, from that time and... and yeah, it came rushing back to me all the all the details of that trip and and uh, my my three months in in Argentina and Chile, mostly spent in Patagonia. Um, and and but the, the story is partly a technology story. Of of course, you know, um, phone reception disappeared ten minutes out of Ushuaia. We're 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 in the in the plains of of uh, of Patagonia, um, and, and I should. Bear in mind for those who, who aren't aware of how big Argentina is, it's, it's, it's 5,000 kilometers from north to south. Um, it takes three hours by plane to, to fly from, from Buenos Aires to Ushuaia, which is you know, staggering if we compare it to, to, to Europe. Um, but so, so you know, we're 10 minutes out of, of uh, the largest city um, in, in the southern part of, of, of Argentina, and we have no reception. And uh, many hours later, we reach another major uh, major port. And here, um, if you want to find accommodation, the best thing is to to simply step off these these fantastic, luxurious coaches uh, that were extremely good value, and, and wait to be accosted by the, these hostel owners who would come and, and grab you and take you off, uh, promising. Uh, a comfortable night's sleep and 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 a hot breakfast, um, and they rarely disappointed. I have to say. Um, now nowadays, I think it would all be rather different, and and I wondered whether at that time it would make sense to to buy up a small fleet of buses and to set up some hostels and to to capture the entire market or, or a large piece of the market by having the operations owned and run by one uh, entity that had both the coaches and the hostels 
And, and therefore, the, the passenger would simply step off the coach and know exactly where they were going and know that they would have a consistent level of quality throughout their trip. So a, a managed um, travel service, essentially, around a, a particular region or a particular sort of backpacker's route. And I suppose today we'd look at it rather differently. Um, we would take out our mobile phones and we would check out Airbnb and book ourselves midway between one location and the next onto uh, into the next uh, flat or hostel or whatever it might be. And it would be very simple to, to, to do. But 10 years ago, the idea of, of having these sort of shared services on shared platforms was quite different. And, and, the, and the, the, the business models have radically changed. Well, and if you think about the um, your engagement as a participant in that, as a as a user as well, um, I think there's been a real uh, change in um, where you're placing your trust too. I mean, you mentioned there about um, you know people descending upon you as you came off the the bus and you having to essentially make some judgments about trust as to whether or not they were going to make good on their promise of the bed for the night and the uh, the good value breakfast the next morning um but i think you're absolutely right that these days people on those kind of routes for various reasons one you know the ubiquity of smartphones but also the improvement of the network coverage and the emergence of this network of um of services which uh, allow you to get information about those kind of uh, areas and the the services available to you means that um, almost everyone now will be making those trust judgments very differently and they will be trusting things in the digital environment rather than trusting what they see in front of their own eyes and the people that they're meeting face to face Uh, and that that from a a consumer experience perspective um, is a really quite significant shift it's it's a very significant shift. I mean, there's there's one similarity in which um, you look at at I suppose user ratings or something of that kind, and and the user rating when you're on the on on the backpacker tour back ten years ago was uh, stories from other backpackers who said yes this hostel is fantastic or no this hostel is terrible avoid it at all costs, um, and and you try to 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 find yourself uh, at a place where you had a good recommendation. But sometimes that just wasn't a possibility. And I'm not sure where we found the trust to, to select one person over another to, to go off to their hostel. Um, I, I no idea whether it was because they shouted loudest or they, they seemed the friendliest or, or, or what it was. So can we objectively say one way or the other whether these developments have made this a better user experience for for travelers in that position now you know if you're in the situation of going off for your first adventure as a a student these days in uh, in patagonia um are you likely to have a better overall experience than you did 10 years ago when things were that much more you know manual and, and analog i have no idea what um the current status of of uh the backpacker uh, seen as like in, in Patagonia now. Uh, I imagine it's changed considerably. Um, but I, I think that the developments um, are almost certainly uh, beneficial. Uh, just last year, I, I, I sailed across from, from Plymouth to Spain without seeing land for three days. 
And just as I was approaching Spain, I, I, I popped out my mobile phone and, and booked myself into um, someone's home uh, through Airbnb. Um, and I was very pleasantly surprised by, by the welcome I received. And I, I, I think that the ability to choose where you're going to stay um, based on location, price, and ratings, and, and various other factors is so much more powerful today and so much more beneficial to, to both the user and the owner of the um, location than, than you can do just by stepping off a coach and, and being greeted by a horde, uh, friendly as, as though they tended to be. So uh, as we look to the future of this, because I think part of this exercise was about, well, if we can take a point in time 10 years ago and we can then take where we are in the present day, we might be able to gather some thoughts about where this might lead in the future. Uh, what would you say are the principles um, that have, have come out of those technological developments in terms of how it's changed users' lives. I mean, the example you're giving there around sailing, which could probably equally be applied to the Patagonia example as well, is there is that real um, sort of just-in-time immediacy to, to things now, where you can leave things up to the last minute, but perhaps have a greater uh, degree of confidence that you're going to be able to make your plans come good because these digital tools have given users the opportunity to to do that. But are there other things, you know, that we can pull out of those stories that um, you feel are going to define where it might get to uh, 10 years hence? Uh, yes, and I, and I think you're right to touch on the immediacy. Um, providing a, a service that is immediately available um, and, and reflects immediate availability. Um, it, this isn't entirely new, of course, but uh, the, the ease of, of, of accessing that, that immediacy of, of um, availability is, is something that feels quite new, um, at least for those of us who are getting a little bit long in the tooth. Um, uh, you, you also mentioned uh, trust earlier, and I, and I think that using a number of different factors to um, provide trust in a service um, are, is also a fundamental part of designing your service effectively. Um, and we've talked about trust in, with, with some of our previous guests also, so I think that's possibly something to, to, to recap also. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were those principles which uh, we released alongside episode nine, uh, where we had the interview guest, um, Richard Lewis, who's the, the head of uh, digital uh, and user experience at, at RBS. Um, and alongside that, we, we published some principles which came out of a previous MEX event, which actually, you know, relate very closely, I suppose, to some of these themes which are coming out of your, your old travel stories as well around, um, you know, that one of them, I think, was about the, the notion of, um, uh, establishing some kind of sort of authoritative uh, appeal around, you know, how you make decisions about things and knowing that you can rely on a source because it seems uh, like an authoritative source of, of information. Uh, there was another as well around being able to tap into the wisdom of crowds and the, the social side of things. And yeah, as you were relating those stories, that was another thing which struck me about it was that, of course, you know, the arrival of, um, digital devices and, and networks en masse has, of course, given us that much greater um, 
scale of, of social communities that we can uh, tap into to be able to make judgments about the, the things around us. And it leads to some quite interesting situations. I mean, I, I travel to the US fairly frequently to see um, family out there and uh, can find myself in the strange situation of, despite being the visitor, um, end up being relied upon to make suggestions about uh, places to go, say to go out for food or go and see, you know, an attraction in a city, because I'm quite accustomed to using um, digital tools to find out about interesting places that even those people who've been living in that area um, for many years uh, don't yet know about because they're less accustomed to using those kind of tools. So it, it creates this strange sort of situation where because of the uh, the global scale now of some of these platforms, which allow us to get more information about the experiences available to us in the, the physical world, uh, you can actually um, operate and tap into some quite specific sort of niches and virtual social circles to influence the experience that you have in a particular place, um, far above and beyond the influence the actual physical characteristics of that place happens so you, you can almost sort of imagine it in your mind's eye as these like virtual distributed networks in their own little bubbles um floating around the world of people who are allied by some um quite uh intangible affinities, say, around a particular area that they work in or um, you know, some particular association in their past. And now they've gone off to all sorts of different parts of the world, but they're having experiences which are directly influenced by those people uh, that they've come to know through other areas, because those are the ones whose opinion they trust through the digital channels that they use and who they remain connected to. So it's it's rather changed um, that whole notion of you know whose eyes we perceive that the physical places that we travel to. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's that's a very interesting point. Is is um, and it touches back on you know who who do we trust, who do we rely on, uh, in order to um, get our own benefits and 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 from 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 the various services that are there, and and it also suggests that there is a there is still a, a huge amount of uh, word of mouth and recommendation that comes into um, our use of and and benefiting from services. So, I mean, you made the point uh, earlier, I think, when you were talking about that piece which sort of inspired your, your thinking around this uh, on M Health, that um, these timescales are actually quite um, significant. You know, we talk about five years or 10 years, that can actually be, you know, an age or more in the, the technology world, and that's probably even accelerating. But um, if you, you try to think um 10 years out and you're, you know, in the phase of having a midlife crisis and decide that you, um, have got to go back and revisit your backpacking days in, uh, in Patagonia. Um, are there some particular ambitions that you would have for the kind of digital experiences that might support that? Um, particularly in the context of, you know, being able to do so in a way that doesn't get in the way of you enjoying the, the physical experiences of it, but actually assists and, and supports that. Yes, I'd be concerned about um, technology getting in the way of, of of appreciating these things. I think one of the fantastic things about getting out into into these wild places, um, and it really truly was wild. I mean, and and I digress briefly, but I, I remember climbing to the top of a, a summit, and there wasn't a single human being in sight. Um, 
and and a condor flying overhead and just checking me out to see if I was food or not. <laughs> that certainly focuses the mind. <laughs> it doesn't. Have, fortunately, condors are scavengers; they're vultures. Um, so so I was safe. Yeah, um, just as long as you it, didn't fall asleep up there. <laughs> Um, I, that was also tempting, um, but um, so so the, these these places are, are are wild, and you and you wouldn't want to to to, to wreck that with technology. Um, and, and going back to my days of of, of uh, carrying the Motorola Razor in my pocket, it it sort of I, I, I used it a little bit to take pictures, um, which were stunningly good at the time for for what they were, but really are awful little things that that. Uh, that if you were to try and, and, and put on a on a PC screen, they would take a sort of a one inch by two inch uh, picture at best. Um, but um, the, uh, the 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 way I think that technology can help is in in uh, as we've been saying is is to to be able to find services that can help you. It might be um, if you get yourself into trouble uh, to access. Um, help quicker um, to be able to geolocate yourself better. Um, but really, outside of this, isn't particularly new. Um, but the the uh, the photographic aspect, I think, is an area where um, I think I would certainly uh, appreciate the, the the massive gains that some of the uh, mobile phones uh, have made. Um, as I say, you know the the, the razors photographic capabilities were were staggering at the time for what they were and they were a bit of fun and I used it a little bit but I was also carrying around a, a big actually it was an analog SLR um, no, no digital SLRs for me at the time um, and, and that was a considerable amount of weight to be carrying as well but I, I think these days I, I you know I'd be very content to carry some of the some of the you know one of one of the best uh, phones and and, and 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 the equipment that it comes built into it already and I suspect that Going forward, five or ten years' time, we can expect the quality of images that you can take uh, will be exceptionally good, but also the ability to easily manipulate those images uh, will also have improved. And, and I think we we touched on briefly in in, a, in an earlier uh, show in, in discussion um, that the use of artificial intelligence to better manipulate images um, could mean that that yeah just the simplest mobile phone will act, will, will be able to faithfully um, capture the image that you're really trying to take uh, and potentially other data streams as well I mean that's obviously one of the things which uh, for phones is really growing at the moment is the range of sensors that are in there and if we class yeah, the camera as being one of those sensors, the one which is able to pick up you know, light and, and imaging around us. Um, it's now joined by very sophisticated microphones, barometers in some of these things, uh, um, thermometers, and um, obviously motion sensors, all these different things which are growing in sophistication, um, growing in the range of things that they can track and that potentially... Um, in an almost invisible way, you could gather a range of data that simply wouldn't have been available to you um, previously when you were doing that trip 10 years ago, but that may actually have quite a fundamental role in um, creating a set of memories around that uh, that trip for you. 
And, and, and speaking of these sensors, Marek, do, do you have any particular thoughts as to uh, how services may have developed over, over the past 10 years and, and also where they might also go in, in the next 10? You mean specific to the, the, the travel world? Whether the travel world or, 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 or your own world. Well, I, I mean, when you first um, suggested this sort of format of, of future gazing for it, I, I got thinking about a couple of different examples. Um, and the, the one which I guess kind of relates a little bit to, to travel, um, which particularly uh, gelled for me, was around cycling. Um, I've always enjoyed cycling in uh, its various forms, um, primarily mountain biking to start off with. And then I got a bit into road biking and now I tend to do a, a bit of a mix of the two. Um, and to varying degrees, you know, I've always been interested in sort of tracking, you know, how far I went and, you know, particularly when I was younger, the kind of speeds that you might hit, you know, there was a particularly steep hill uh, not too far from where I lived growing up. And, you know, my friends and I would go and see who could um, hit the highest speed on our speedos going down this uh, this hill. Um, the best occasion of which was when um, there was actually one of those uh, traffic cameras installed there and we took turns seeing if we could actually ping the traffic camera on our bikes and uh, get up to a particularly good speed but um, not to get distracted from the topic of um, of digital user experience what struck me about these things was that um, you know they were dedicated devices at the time if you wanted to have something on your bike which tracked how far you'd gone how fast you'd gone they were these little devices that went onto the handlebars. Uh, they typically had either proprietary wireless connections um, or wired ones where you had to go through the process of running the cable down the frame of your bike and taping it in place and all that sort of uh, nonsense. Uh, and they were very much isolated to themselves as a single unit. So on one of them, you know, I managed to clock up a fair amount of, of miles up into the thousands. And you know, I was quite proud of having achieved all of these miles uh, on the bike. And I didn't want to change it You know, when new ones came out because those memories, um, if you like, were tied to that particular sensor for me. And there was no way for me to get them off there or export them to a new one or you know, to, to use them in any way. They were confined within that, uh, that particular device. Um, but uh, of course, you know, one of the big changes, if you come forward 10 years to where we are today, is that now um, almost all of those things, whether they are um, specifically you know, a, a dedicated cycle computer or whether it's tracking these things on your phone, which is more and more possible because of those sensors we were talking about, um, all of that stuff is shareable. It's no longer confined to the particular physical device that it was on. Uh, and that gives rise to a bunch of other things um, potentially that you can do with those data, you know, socially or, or for your own consumption. So I think that's, you know, that's been quite a fundamental change around that particular experience of cycling, but could probably be extrapolated to a whole number of, of other areas as well. So that's kind of uh, that's quite good fun, actually, isn't it? The the building up of a, of effectively a, a score 
which which uh, you you is made up of a number of miles that you've cycled, or or, or perhaps other scores like uh, how fast you've been, um, uh, and and maybe you also managed to keep track somehow of the number of security cameras, or, or rather the speed cameras that you've you've pinged along the way. Yeah, that would be a great uh, you know set of achievements to to have. Um, but it's it, it's it's I guess you were living to an extent some sort of a gamified experience. I guess yeah. These these days, you know, that probably is the term that you would apply to it. I mean, it didn't feel like it at the time. It was just, or at least not in the sense of it being a you know a digital game. It was um, you know a, a game that maybe I was playing with a, a group of friends, you know, in the moment to be able to compare these things. But there was no digital connection between them. Um, I mean, that that started to emerge, of course. I mean, I was looking back when I started thinking about this around, you know, when some of those first um, smartphone based trackers started to come out. And the one which I used earliest of all was um, actually came from Nokia. They had an app called Sports Tracker for their Symbian phones back in 2004. Uh, and it was one of the, you know, really early examples of being able to use uh, a GPS to track your progress on a map and record things like speed and distance and all of that kind of stuff. And to actually then be able to do something with it afterwards, either to review the stats on your own phone in a bit more of a granular way than you could do through one of these dedicated cycle computers or to share them on to other people. Uh, but yeah, that experience started being as something incredibly clunky. First of all, you had to start the thing manually. So whenever you went into this experience, you had to be very much sort of geared up for it. You know, I am now starting my tracker um, and I've got to remember to switch it off. You know, if we stop for lunch somewhere, for instance, I've got to switch this thing off. Otherwise, the GPS will be hunting uh, for a signal in the background uh, and I'll probably find the battery has drained. So those kind of hygiene factors of the user experience were very poor in the early days, as is often the case with a new technology when it gets introduced. But if you then look... Eric, it's, it's, it's probably worth just mentioning here that 2004 is fully five years before the App Store was launched. So in, in, in technology terms, this is, this is the ice age. So that, that, that even existed as sports tracker back then is, is phenomenal. Yeah, you're making me feel simultaneously quite long in the tooth and a bit of a pioneer here. Um, but yeah I mean it it was a very early example of it Uh, and in fact Sports Tracker is is still going Uh, I think they 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 were spun out of uh, Nokia um, during the transition when Nokia sold off its devices business became an independent company and then I think like quite a few of these um, quantified self apps uh, have since been acquired by a larger sporting goods company which is a bit of a trend that's going on in that space at the moment a lot of those um, independent sports tracking applications yeah, which became quite a, a popular category within those early app stores have now gone on to be bought by these large uh, sporting goods companies like uh, Under Armour and Nike and uh, Adidas have all made acquisitions um, in that area. But you know, these days, um, one of the big changes with it from uh, a user experience perspective is that all of that sort of manual management of that tracking, of that recording of, of that particular aspect of your memories uh, has been taken away from the process. Uh, so we spoke on a previous episode to Timo Ahopelto, uh, who's the managing partner at Lifeline Ventures. And one of their early investments was um, uh, an app which did exactly that called Moves that went on to be acquired by Facebook. And 
the unique selling point of Moves was the elegance with which you could forget about that app tracking your activities uh, and just let it get on with it in the background. All of the other sports trackers up to that point uh, had been very good on things like detail and accuracy, but Moves realized that there was a much wider market opportunity out there, which was for the people who um, didn't want to spend all of that time managing the process of gathering these stats and, and their memories. What they wanted was something that they could just go back to when you know, they were reminded to do so uh, in a random moment and be able to see, oh, you know what, it captured that 10 minute cycle ride I had when I did the London bike hire scheme. And, you know, it tracked that little random 20 minute run that I went for. And I didn't have to remember um, to do all of those things manually, because that was one of the things which, you know, changed the experience about doing those physical activities with Sports Tracker was that you became very conscious that you were tracking those things. And in some ways, you know, that was a benefit because it's kind and perhaps spurred you to do a little bit more, but it also um, made you feel like you know you were engaged in a bit of a digital activity at a time when perhaps you wanted to be concentrating on the fact that you were on a great trail or you're out on a, a beautiful blue sky day. So where we've got to it today, I think, is that they've been able to, you know, through using these advanced sensors and the the better power management around them and all of the sort of automation that's come in with the next generation of smartphones, is we've been able to remove that management of the experience um, from the user's to-do list so that they can now concentrate on, you know, enjoying the actual benefits of that experience itself. Now, I actually downloaded the Moves app. It still it still is available. But after listening to, to, to Timo speak, I uh, downloaded the app and, and I have been running it in the background uh, of my phone pretty much nonstop since. And it's one of the things that, that Timo mentioned was that design was so important. Um, design for a lot of people tends to be visual, but they've designed, they really have designed the user experience. As you say, you don't have to think about it too much. Um, but you can think about it and you, and you can do various things with it, such as uh, setting at a time of your own choosing, whether it's, you know, uh, one evening while you're just killing some time, you can, you can, you can tell the app what that place was that you stopped at or was it walking or running or cycling that you were doing um but it'll carry on running without without you having to do anything as you say in the background um and it manages the the uh, its battery usage very cleverly um and and as well as all of that the the interface really is very slick and simple um quite a quite a quite a beautiful um uh, experience altogether actually yeah, it's worth checking out here you know, for any listeners who, who haven't seen it yet. Uh, as Alex says, it's still downloadable for both iOS and, and Android. Uh, as just an example of uh, experience design, it's quite an interesting one to go and have a look at. And I do hope it, it survives within Facebook um, to actually become a, a meaningful service for the future. And quite often with these acquisitions, they do so because of the strength of the team, which is being essentially acquired or because there's a very particular bit of technology. And then the actual consumer facing side of that um, disappears and gets subsumed by a large company. But I do hope this one continues, uh, not least because um, it, it takes a real leap of imagination, I think, on the part of someone creating an app or a service like that to essentially put ego aside. You know, almost always when you have someone who's got the capability to create a great um, interaction design, naturally, they want 
to engage the user for the most amount of time. And you know, they want that to be something significant and meaningful in the user's lives. But I think the breakthrough for moves really came when they were able to take that ego out of the equation and say, you know what, the, the killer thing for this app is to not be that thing that has primacy in the user's life, that it should be something which could just sit quietly in the background. And yes, when the user chooses to engage with it, um, you know, they can go back to it. Going back to my point from the start of the podcast about uh, needy technology, which in that case was uh, a hire car that I was using, which just kept beeping at me for random reasons because it, it seemed to need the attention. Um, it's uh, it's something which is, can be instantly off-putting for users when a, a technology is too needy, even if the UI is a sp- especially beautiful um, for most people that they want uh, technology to, to serve them rather than to be the, the master in life. I think that's a very strong point. And I think that there's another point which is related to ego, but but really on, on the other side of the coin, which is that it takes a, a huge amount of courage to implement uh, a, a, a design that is uh, radically different and, and is also so generous to you in terms of your time. I, I think that the tendency for most of us is to make incremental improvements on what exists rather than daring to say, well, you know what, we'll just, we'll, we'll stick it in the background and, 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 and let the user use it when they want to and not, not demand, not demand the, their attention so much. And, um, and so often that's where the big breakthroughs come from is when someone can make that uh, that real leap to break with the traditions of a particular uh, sector um, or a particular, you know, category of apps, uh, and say, actually, we can do things very differently here. Uh, you know, the classic example, I think, being the the iPhone, where um, you know that was something which looked entirely different. Although it's hard to imagine now when everything looks like the iPhone at the time it came out, it was entirely different and offered a very different experience to everything else on the market and almost all of the old guard um, who saw it when it came out were dismissive of it and saying it always represented a niche and that it lacked all of these key features which other things could do um, but in several core areas which were very important to users it did things in a way that was new and pleasing uh, and that was where the big breakthrough came from and uh, you know I think we're likely to see a similar thing around this whole area of um, of quantified self and, and tracking and, and recording your memories. Um, as we go forward, you know, another 10 years from now, I think the things which succeed to a large extent are going to look entirely different from those which have dominated the market in the previous 10 years and, and, and today. Okay, Marek. So 10 years from now, let, let's, let's think a little bit about, you know, what's it going to look like? What are the technologies that are being developed now and and how are they going to impact on our lives in 10 years time what 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 what, what do you think Marek? well i think you can see an early clue actually if you have uh, an android device um go into google maps and go into the little um your timeline section uh, on the uh, the hamburger menu on the left hand side um, I did this the other day and realized that quite unbeknownst to me, um, there is an entire history of um, where I have been, 
where I took certain photos, the names of those places, the times that I was there, the methods that I used to get between those those different places. And this was something that was happening entirely, uh, you know, beneath the, the surface of the iceberg, as it were. You know, although I use Google Maps frequently, I had no idea it was building up this sort of log using all of those different sensors on the device, you know, probably tapping into things like the um, accelerometers, obviously the GPS as well, the camera sensors. Um, and it was building up this, um, this store of, of memories uh, without me knowing about it. And now, you know, I've been able to go back through that and be absolutely fascinated about the stuff that it's uh, it's captured. Uh, and the thing which really surprised me about it, and you know, perhaps this is not a good thing in terms of um, the kind of you know the way people feel about Google and the kind of privacy issues and the tracking that they do, is that almost no one seems to know about this. You know, even people who use Google Maps very frequently just don't go into this section and realize that all of those data are there. Uh, and I think that gives us a bit of a map of, of where it might. Um, might go in the in the future. Um, I, I had no idea about that at all. Um, and actually, as an iOS user, I, I I actually use Apple Maps, which probably puts me in a minority. Um, but the that that I mean that is that is incredible. And but I, I wonder, and you've touched on it a little bit, whether that feels perhaps a little bit creepy as well as impressive. Yeah, I mean, there is certainly that that moment where I think, you know, no doubt I have given Google permission by clicking some button at some point, but probably didn't realize that I was doing so. So, you know, clearly there is a whole rabbit hole that we could go down around the privacy issues on that. Personally, I tend to be a bit of an optimist in, in that regard. And I think that there are ways that you can address those privacy questions up front and sort of change the, the context in which people make those decisions and give those permissions so that they feel more comfortable when they see what it, it can do. Um, I know other people, you know, will, will come down on rather different sides of, of that um, question, but you know that that's a personal um, choice. But I think if we if we park that to one side and say that yes, we can get to a place where people are comfortable that that is not a creepy thing um, to have been tracked, and that they were conscious that they are giving permission. Let's say we can get to that point. What I think it, it means is that fundamentally our expectation of these digital services will be that our past is no longer something that we have random snapshots of that were taken in a particular moment, but actually our past is something um, that we can go back and review and repurpose and extract things from across uh, you know, a much more detailed timeline than we've done before without having to have made the decision in the moment that that was something we wanted to track or, or capture. Uh, and I think that's really quite a significant difference in the kind of interaction models that we might use to engage with those kind of memories and the way that we engage with the, the digital world uh, around us. Um, and I think it, it's something which is going to have impact not just for individual users, but also um, for all of the companies that are engaged in delivering products into the hands of those users. Because if you you know take that into other industries, like say automotive or bike manufacturing or those kind of things, I think there'll now be an expectation that all of these products will be able to track their behavior um, as they're being used and be able to feed that information back into the design and manufacturing process so that people can rely on real-time 
real data about how these things are being used in the field by users uh, and use that to, to enhance and, and improve them in the future, which I think will be a, a really big change for, uh, for manufacturing and, and product design as a whole. So you, you, you see this very much as not just um, something that's, that touches on, on consumption and creativity, but on something uh, of a personal nature, but on, for, for something that is, is, is much broader than that and, and um, has potential impacts on, on a range of, of different industries. I would say so. I mean, I'm guessing you must be familiar with Tesla, the, the car manufacturer. Yes, I mean, are you aware of the the extent to which they're using data um, downloaded from the cars to fine tune the, the the driving experience? Well, please please go ahead and tell us more about it. I mean, it, it's you know been something which has been you know, integrated into those those vehicles um, right from the outset, and at the moment, you know, there's a, a level of sophistication with it in terms of what they can analyze from the way people drive, where they drive to with these things. Um, but I think if we go forward 10 years, we'll look back on even something like that, which feels quite groundbreaking at the moment, and realize that, in fact, it was just the very early stages of that notion that um, any physical object of a certain value or utility, it will make complete sense for that object to be able to talk back to its original creators uh, about how it's being used, where it's being used, for how long it's being used, um, when there's a potential problem emerging with it, so that those things can be used to improve future versions of it, or to in fact preemptively fix that particular uh, object before it, it breaks. You know, I think at the, at the moment that feels like... Um, a very new thing. It feels like something which is potentially intrusive into users' lives for those concerns around privacy that we mentioned. But I think if we go forward 10 years from here, we'll actually be at the point where that's table stakes and that, that that's just the expectation. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think the we, we probably shouldn't get bogged down in privacy. I think that's not a, a debate that we'll take any further forward. Um, but what's interesting, I think, is, is um, how many different technologies are, are, are playing into this um, you know, from from machine learning to uh, robotics uh, and 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 three D printing of of new parts and, and other material sciences that come into play here. I think it's fascinating. It, it really is, and as you say, it's affecting such a diverse range of areas. I mean, I, I know you love a, a good walk and going out and exploring the world. I, I don't know if you caught the the study which came out, and I'll dig out the links to put them in the, the show notes. So I can't remember exactly uh, which research, researchers were behind it. Um, but the conclusion of this study was that they've now managed to develop um, a drone which is capable of learning trails faster uh, than a human can. Uh, and they were looking at this in the context of how it can improve uh, things like search and rescue missions, where if you've got a large area to explore for someone you know, who's lost up a mountain, um, this drone is now able to achieve greater success rates in doing that um, through the artificial intelligence that's embedded within it uh, than human teams can. And, and, and that is obviously a, a, a very valuable way of, of um, not only saving lives, but also uh, saving money and saving lives because, you know, these, these things can be very expensive to, to set up. And, and if you have some idea of last known location, uh, I guess you can take that forward in, in quite a, quite a uh, 
massive way. Um, and I, I wonder whether, as well as, as, as it being useful on land, whether this is something that will help search and rescue uh, on the seas where so many different things come into play. And, and of course, the sea isn't static in the same way that the land is. Um, and um, whether, you know, you'll be able to, to uh, somehow triangulate the, you know, the, the, the different things that come into play here, you know, in terms of, of, of waves and, and wind speed and, uh, and, and the, the likelihood of, of drifting, etc. Um, uh, and whether or not you'll be able to, to then launch a drone um, that will be able to, to, to pinpoint your, your location more accurately and, and uh, be better at saving life. Uh, absolutely and i think it it kind of um speaks to the opportunities around um areas where there is that risk to human life and being able to put um uh, drones or you know some form of artificial intelligence into that environment uh, where it can do not only you know a, a better job but one which reduces the risk to the the human operators um there's actually an example of this which uh, we've been using for the, the user mode of control in the, the MEX initiative, um, which broadly speaking is just this notion of how we simplify life through commands and automation. Uh, and it's from a, a company which did a Kickstarter called uh, Ziphius. And it's this little um, self-supporting uh, aquatic drone um, that they actually developed with a kind of consumer mentality in mind so that it could be used for instance by uh, people who are into surfing so they could send it off around a, a dangerous headland to go and explore the wave conditions on the other side uh, and it would then come back and uh, report back to them on um, you know what those conditions were like or even take some photographs and, and come back and uh, uh, and give them a bit of a summary of what was going on uh, and again something which at the moment seems very futuristic and far-fetched quite a you know perhaps an indulgent sort of boys toy uh, kind of category but I think we'll you know quite rapidly get to the point where actually these things become fairly commonplace yeah you know, if you look at what's happened for instance with something like the uh, the GoPro, camera uh yeah i can remember when those first started to appear uh around mountain biking trails and to be frank you know you looked at the people who were strapping these onto their heads and thinking wow you know you're you're trying a little bit hard here this is all a bit over the top and now it is just like the de facto thing pretty much anytime you see someone out there doing some kind of extreme sport um they've got a GoPro camera with them and are capturing footage of it so that they can either, you know, share tales of that trail with people afterwards or they can keep it for their own records or because they're doing it like semi-professionally and they're blogging about it afterwards and, um, you know, using it to build up the stories around it. And it's just become something which has become sort of ingrained into the culture of those sports now. So very quickly, the consumer expectation around it starts to, to change. And Marek, it's not just one camera these days. Um, people now have arrays of cameras uh, that you might have on your, you know, on your ski boot, on your ski helmet, uh, possibly on your ski poles, um, that allow you to capture various different angles, um, which you can then edit into uh, a, a piece that is, you know, pretty, pretty professional in some ways. Um, so, so it's it's pretty fascinating what you can do with that. But you you bring me on to an, another question. Um, Earlier today, I, I saw a, a piece um, uh, tweeted. Uh, it's a piece that's been written up on, on the Reuters blog. Uh, and the title is, Why Computers May Never Replace Human Spies. 
Um, and one of the things that uh, I, I came to realize very, fairly recently is that whenever someone says something will never happen, um, it usually means that it will happen for certain, um, and it'll be something like 10 years' time before it does. Um, and, um, you know, things like, of course, computers were, were one of them, and, and, and mobile phones, and uh, I don't know if you recall the, the, the Zone phone um, back in the day. No, uh, what was the Zone phone? Ah, the Zone phone. Now, this takes us back mm, 20 years um, they had them uh, in various locations. You, you you went and stood in a particular zone with this huge, great, big phone in your hand, and so long as you were near enough to that to that zone to that place, um, you could have a, a mobile phone conversation. Oh yeah, I think I do remember this now. And they had sort of zones at places like train stations and and that kind of thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and you know you 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 looked at it in those days and you thought mobile phones are never going to take off. I mean seriously, look at the size of those phones and and you have to go and stand in this place. And and here we are today, and we all carry this this phone combined with a computer in our pockets, and it's it's um, it's it's tiny and, and amazing. But so my question to you, Marek, is this: What do you think uh, today is is considered something that will never happen um that really secretly uh you really would like to happen and 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 probably think it might oh that is a that is a good question (sighs) to me it, it feels like there is something brewing around um personal mobility shall we say in the sense of physical mobility um and the more time i spend talking with uh car manufacturers the more you start to realize that they are having quite a few sleepless nights as they start to realize that if you looked at the problem of how to get people from one place to another um, today from scratch it would look almost nothing like the cars that we have on the road today that they are not a solution that makes good user experience sense for most people if you view it objectively and forget all of that legacy that has come before and of course the counter argument is that all of that legacy does exist in fact you know almost all of our built environment over the last hundred years the car has been one of the largest influencing factors in how we've laid all of that out and people will look at it and say well we will never change all of that you know that is what has come to define the shape of our cities the way in which we live our lives and the rise of suburban living and all of those sort of things and that it seems like one of those big immovable objects but then if you start to track some of the things coming together around artificial intelligence around notions of shared ownership and uh, buying services on demand and you know the way that digital is enabling us to do that at such scale um, it, it feels to me like that could be an area in which we're going to be quite surprised by the progress which is made and, and how rapidly um, that is made as these things start to fall into place where we will find ourselves getting from a to b in rather different ways than uh, we've been used to for the last hundred odd years uh, what about you is there something which um you know you feel is going to surprises in that regard well i i was looking at um some of the areas that uh innovate uk 
our funding, Innovate UK being the old technology strategy board, um, I feel that everyone has to always say specify that it's a technology strategy board that we're looking at when we mention Innovate UK. Absolutely. And probably someone we should give a bit of a shout out to as well. In fact, I know um, one of the chaps at Innovate UK uh, was one of our first listeners to the the podcast, and they have been um, long-term supporters of the, the MEX initiative as, as sponsors as well. So um, it's always nice to hear about the things which uh, they're supporting. Well, I was looking at their, their, their plan for the next couple of years, and um, one of the areas that they are looking at uh, is around health and life. Uh, and this essentially means uh, agriculture and food and, and health care. Um, and, and what we're looking at are, are a number of uh, things that are coming into play around population growth, um, uh, wealth and the association of wealth with uh, the burden of disease, um, ironically, um, and, and of course, with uh, the growth in population, the, the, the calls for um, food supply uh, and, and the ability to, to, to meet food demand um, adequately uh, without having such a great impact on, on our environment. Um, but um, the, the disciplines that it's, it's touching on are, are you know, around bioscience and medical research and physics and engineering. And, and, I, and I'm thinking that actually if we start putting all these things together and we think a little bit about healthcare, um, I, I think healthcare is going to radically change over the next 10 years simply because if it doesn't, uh, we're in trouble. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's not news to, to report that um, the NHS is likely to be in a thirty billion pound hole by twenty twenty, um, if things don't change, and 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 we can't just go and spend the money and borrow it and somehow spend it, um, because that that's not that's not going to work. We we need to change the way we we deliver healthcare, and what is amazing is that there are so many things that are being worked on right now that are likely to radically change how uh, we prevent, diagnose, and. Uh, uh, prescribe healthcare if you like so so um uh, if, if we look across all these different fields of of virtual reality or augmented reality artificial intelligence 3d printing robotics uh the internet of things we can quite quickly find ourselves in a situation where um you know we 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 diagnose things remotely using artificial intelligence um we uh Patients and, and doctors uh, meet in order to discuss um, what digital health applications might um, be used to support medical treatments or indeed to uh, to replace pharmaceutical treatments. Um, we might see uh, the operating theatre um, change fundamentally so that uh, some particular experience that exists on one side of the world is deployed uh, to another, um, and and we might even see, for example, the the the, the, the development of um, uh, replacement body parts being three D printed in the in the operating theatre, um, alongside the growing of um, organic matter to to replace lost organic matter. Um, uh, and 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 so on. So you can see that the the, the possibilities are um, very very broad. Uh, and I think 
um, anything that you can possibly imagine is is not only possible but likely to come into being in the next 10 to 20 years. And we're already, I think, starting to see some of those advances happening with surprising speed. I mean, I, I was reading the other day about the progress with uh, Apple's initiatives on this around health kit and now care kit, um, where health kit was um, the thing they introduced uh, around um, researchers being able to um, manage much more effectively these research uh, programs around particular illnesses with users of iPhones tapping into some of the sensors on the devices. So one of the ones which they did was for um, uh, tracking uh, people with Parkinson's, where you're able to use the accelerometers on the device to perform different exercises at different times of day when asked to by these researchers, uh, so that they can track things like, um, you know, mobility and, and dexterity and relate that into Parkinson's research. And before those sort of studies used to involve all kinds of technological setup and cost and could only be done with a limited number of users. And since Apple has introduced this, they've been able to scale up. Uh, that kind of research um, almost overnight um, to you know, an exponential degree, which is allowing those researchers to get much better data uh, about the illness uh, and about how it's affecting people. And clearly that will lead to, to greater progress in how that's being done. And now with CareKit, they're adding in the sort of um, uh, missing link, if you like, with it, where they're actually able now to relate that to some direction, directly actionable advice being given back to individual users off the back of the data which they're sending in, um, so that it's no longer just about feeding in information to a research program, but it can actually be part of an active treatment plan. Um, again, seemingly small steps and things which um, people could look at and say, well, yes, but that will never replace X or that will never replace Y because those are the legacy things that we have. But when you're able to sort of abstract yourself from that a little bit and take a longer term view and look at it in the context of some of these other um, innovation periods that we've looked at over the last five and 10 years, you realize that there are probably the seeds of a really quite um, transformational shift in, in healthcare uh, just in its very formative stages at the moment. And I think one of the things that you, you slightly touch on there is um, data and how it is shared and the nature of the relationship between patient and caregiver. And, and I think traditionally the doctor was the omniscient, omnipotent healer um, and the patient um, essentially was, was expected to simply follow instructions. Um, but that is, that that is changing um, to a degree which uh, in 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 the sense that th these days the patient is is really more of a client almost um, a, a consumer of the services and um, in many cases wishes to know what is being done why it's being done and how it's being done and um, both the say the general practitioner and the, uh, the, the patient want to know, um, for example, you know, what are the uh, levels of iron in the blood and what are the implications of that and how that should be managed and, and then come to a solution together with the caregiver. Um, but I think another thing that's also uh, very interesting and, and we've talked about sensors a little bit is um, 
the impact of of new sensors, biosensors, on areas such as uh, mental health, and and I think mental health has has is now coming out of uh, out of this area of of, of being stigmatized into uh, into a, a new um, era where where it's 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 uh, treated in the same way that that other illnesses are treated, um, and and there are certain biosensors that are being developed now um, that can, for example, detect uh, levels of certain hormones or, or chemicals in your sweat, and can therefore predict what uh, what might be about to occur with you in terms of your mental health, um, and therefore allow you to to mitigate your personal circumstances at that point in time by making you aware of what's going on around you and and therefore to to avoid uh, certain things happening um, uh, as an example so so there there are there there are so many different uh, possibilities here so many different sciences that are being pulled together um, and and it's great to see um, bodies such as um, innovate uk and of course so many other um, commercial uh, entities, venture capitalists, as, as well as private investors, uh, getting involved in in, um, in funding, uh, what will hopefully mean uh, a huge shift in the in, in in healthcare and and the general wellness and well-being um, of our populations. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think um, yeah, we're likely to see significant leaps in that area and it will be you know very much to the the, the positive benefit of people and uh, i mean i suppose we should try um to you know draw this to a, a bit of a a conclusion and and see you know whether there are any common threads that we can identify coming through this i mean one which occurs to me is that implicit in having this conversation on something like the mex podcast is that these things tend uh, to succeed and happen most rapidly uh, when they can be tied directly to those sort of um user-facing scenarios uh, like around cycling or, or traveling, for instance, that, that you and I anchored the conversation in, um, and where you are able to use those kind of personal experiences and the, the realities of life to drive it, uh, rather than it coming from that sort of top-down, um, heavy approach, if you like, to, to, to innovation. So I think that's something which is sort of implicit in the conversation. But are, are there other things which you know, have occurred to you thinking back over the discussion um, that might give us uh, some sort of reliable, repeatable strands that you could identify for how we can make these things happen more rapidly and how we can make them happen in a, a customer-focused way? Um Wow. Yes. I mean, that's um, quite quite a broad question, really. I I, I think that um, uh, the user experience industry, but not just user experience. Um, uh, I, I think we're we're all as individuals, both uh, in our personal lives and in our in our working lives, are, are, are bringing together our experiences um, of using technologies, and um, I, I suppose as as the shift in technology accelerates, and we've talked about this already today, about the speed of change, um, and and uh, as as the networks between individuals accelerates, I, I think what is uh, what is certainly likely is, is that we we are all going to be bringing 
um, our personal experiences to uh, to innovation to to accelerate the speed of innovation even further. Yeah, that that strong personal link, I think, and the the sort of um, personal empowerment that is coming out of being able to tap in to these new sensors, for instance, that are coming into our lives and being able to record greater amounts of those data which emerge from them, analyze them in different ways. Any time in which you put users at the heart of that and you give them the ability, for instance, to make their own decisions or at least ask um, their own questions uh, around, for instance, things that they're now able to see with more granularity about their health or, you know, about the way they travel or about the way they consume media or whatever it is. Anytime you give people access to a, a greater range of information about that, generally they start to ask interesting questions and they start to push for progress and contribute to it th themselves. Uh, and that is multiplied out hugely when you do so in a way which allows people to combine and collaborate over it, be those groups of uh, individual users or people who are then able to collaborate better with the companies or the organizations that are, are working in that area. Um, you know, that, that sort of information and granularity of data is a powerful way to move forward these things uh, more rapidly. So that perhaps would seem to be a... Um, you know, a, a principle, if you like, which we could um, determine to be quite important to making these things happen more more quickly. Yeah, certainly. I think um, increasingly, when people say, "Wouldn't it be great if um, there is there, there is someone who's thinking about that," um, and um, not just someone, but various people independently thinking about these things, trying to come up with solutions, and in the process of developing these solutions, um, the ones that are going to be commercially successful, that are going to engage users and, and, and ultimately be effective in, in, in dealing with that, wouldn't it be great if scenario, um, they're the ones who are, who are bringing in the people with uh, those questions, uh, those challenges, and, and um, letting them define what it is that that experience is going to be in a large way. Yeah, I suppose that principle of co-creation um, and you know, how you manage that effectively uh, you know it's a topic which has come up in numerous mex events and um, you know that balance between involving um, end users in the innovation process and also being able to kind of help connect the dots for them and make those those leaps forward i think is something which is going to be fundamental to it um, however i am conscious uh, looking to our own future that we are recording this late on a Friday afternoon uh, and that um, the weekend is not too far off of a, a leap for us to be making. So um, perhaps we should draw things to a, a close. Um, I'm conscious that we have uh, mentioned really quite a wide range of references, probably the most we've ever mentioned in a, a MEX podcast. So maybe a bit of homework for us over the weekend is to go off and uh, make sure we put all of those different links into the show notes so that people uh, can go back and find all of those things that we've talked about and go off and have a, a read about them for themselves. So maybe we will um, spend a bit of time over the weekend getting those together. Absolutely, Marek. But uh, also, I hope you will uh, spend some time just generally enjoying our, our, our wet weather. Yes, looking out of the window today at least, it does not look wildly promising. I did have half a mind that this might be the weekend when um, the chilly North Sea provides the first swim of the year, but 
looking out of uh, the window at the moment, I think that might need to be postponed for at least one more weekend. What about you? What's on the agenda? Uh, I have a birthday party, a children's birthday party, um, uh, which will be uh, a lot of fun, I'm sure, on on Sunday. That sounds Uh, a lot more (laughs) civilised. Well, I, I, I won't be getting frozen, I should think. Uh, no, indeed. Well, uh, very nice to um, talk through these things and um, you know, some interesting things which have come out of the conversation. So I would encourage uh, anyone who's interested in um, you know, looking a little bit further into some of these issues uh, to go and have a look at the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Uh, and of course, to um, have a look at some of the episodes which are now building up in our growing archive of, uh, of previous podcasts um, any particular memorable ones or uh, favorite episodes you want to recommend for people looking for some weekend listening alex well the um they're all fascinating i have to say the uh, the, the guests that that uh, that have have joined us um i uh, was particularly keen on uh, ramona liberoff um and uh, her discussion around um investing in um, ways of, of looking uh, after adolescent girls specifically in developing countries. And, and that, was, that was a fascinating talk for me. Yeah, that, that was an intriguing one indeed. Uh, episode 8, I believe, in the, the archive, uh, and one that's available uh, at mobileuserexperience.com for anyone who wants to have a listen. Well, Alex, thanks very much, and uh, we will catch up on the next episode. Have a great weekend, Marek. And that's it for this edition of Mech's Design Talk. Do please get in touch with your feedback. We are at Mech's Feed on Twitter. Or if you visit mobileuserexperience.com, you can find other ways to get in touch with us through the site. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.